Our Bible reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, thanks, Bing, and good morning again, everyone. As we begin today, I'd like you to take a minute to reflect on how you're travelling with life at the moment. If you had an uninterrupted, kind of unguarded hour with a good friend over a beer or a coffee this week, what stories would flow from your heart? My sense at the moment, as our third sort of COVID-affected winter comes to an end, is that together we're in a transitionary moment. There's a desire and some good reasons to be optimistic, yet there's still many tensions across our workplaces, our homes, in the economy, the communities that we're all a part of, facing problems that we don't have solutions to as yet. I don't know about you, but in uh, the good times, the bad, 
and of course the many places in between, it's easy for my field of view to kind of shorten down just to kind of the day or the week ahead. And there's been many a time over the last few years where that's been the right thing to do, and there is a certain freedom and simplicity in it. Yet if we never kind of look up, if we kind of keep head down walking through the valleys, we can get a little lost and a bit uncertain in life where to tread next. Taking a moment to sort of expand our horizon, think of the years and the decades ahead where under God we might like to go, it can reorient us. It's like climbing to the top of a mountain range and looking out to the far horizon to get your bearings and see the big picture. Today's passage from Isaiah is one of the great high points of the Old Testament. It's kind of the Old Testament equivalent of standing on Mount Everest and looking to a truly far horizon from the perspective of God whose time horizon stretches out so much further than ours. To see what's truly important to him as he looks at his world and acts throughout history today and tomorrow until its appointed end. My hope today is that as we look at this passage, you'll find the view quite breathtaking and that looking to this far horizon might bring comfort, joy, awe and help you reframe and reorient the next chapter of our lives. And that as a church family together, that it might challenge and change us in response to God's grace that we might live more wholeheartedly for his glory bringing the extraordinary good news of Jesus to those around us as we find both comfort in times of weakness and experience the goodness of God walking in his ways each day. And if you're here today thinking through who Jesus is for the first time, it's a great day to be with us and actually hope today leaves a lasting impression on you as you come to see a little more why Christians love Jesus so much, why, in fact, that you would want this to all be true, why it's worthy of further investigation. So for all of us, if you haven't already, open up Isaiah 52 to verse 13, which is on page 1108 of the Bibles on your seats, or open it up on an app. The start of this series uh, from chapter 40 is all on the website and you can head to Trinity Church Kernelite Gardens for the last year's series on the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, if you're keen. But in recent weeks, we've seen that in Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel are heading towards destruction and exile because of their sin and propensity to worship anything other than the one true God. As our kids are looking at, in, uh, as Susanna introduced this morning, the golden calf incident is just one of many uh, across the Old Testament, illustrating God's people's propensity to do so. And that's uh, it's Isaiah's ministry in this context of coming destruction and exile to prepare them to understand this time and God's discipline aright from his perspective. It's at the hinge point of Isaiah's ministry recorded for us uh, starting in chapter 40 that Isaiah moves from the nation's kind of present problems to a future unspecified time where God will solve the problem beneath all other problems, the problem of the human heart. Saving a people for himself 
that will relate to him aright with hearts transformed to worship and enjoy him forever. In recent weeks, Isaiah has been building his picture of a coming servant who will accomplish great deeds and bring blessing to the far reaches of the globe, to the islands yet unknown in his day. They're often referred to as the servant songs, and today's reading quite clearly, I think, contains the best song on the album. As Isaiah opens up, speaking God's words in verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted. You'll note there, there's a little uh, footnote on the phrase, act wisely, which if you look down to the bottom of uh, your Bibles there, the footnote says, we'll prosper. When you see those little footnotes in the Bible, it's a signal that there's something in our English language that can't quite capture all of the original language that Isaiah was recorded in, in this case, Hebrew. The average Jew would have had a much stronger connection between, much stronger connection than we do, between the ideas of wisdom, prosperity and success. So really God is saying more fully uh, in this uh, opening verse, see my servant will prosper and be successful in his plans. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Which sets the tone a little better as this song opens. It's a bit more than simply acting wisely. God's servant is really going to deliver. His plans will prosper. He'll be successful. Yet Isaiah then says something entirely unexpected in a couple of ways. He first switches, like prophets sometimes do, to speaking of the future as if it's already happened. But also the content of what he says is entirely unexpected, that this highly exalted successful one will suffer appallingly. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Which to Isaiah's first readers, and to many still today, is quite perplexing. That sense of surprise is dampened a little for Christians familiar with the New Testament that, as Philip opened up today, makes it clear that Isaiah here is speaking of Jesus. If you were to look Uh, For example, at a story like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, recorded for us in Acts chapter 8, it has an almost kind of comical aspect to it. We read of an Ethiopian reading this very servant song we read today from Isaiah while in kind of chariot traffic one day, bad form I think, you know, driving and trying to read a scroll at the same time, he should have lost points off his licence. Anyway, Philip jogs up alongside and says, do you understand what you're reading there, mate? No, says the Ethiopian. How can I unless someone explains it to me? Is Isaiah talking about himself or someone else here in this very servant song? And Philip shares with him that it was Jesus Isaiah spoke of prophetically and he shares the good news of the death of Christ for our sins. They see some water, pull over, And the Ethiopian is baptised and heads off rejoicing, having been reconciled with God. I really don't know what the first readers of Isaiah may have made of verse 14. Maybe they might start thinking back to King Hezekiah. Maybe it just kind of blew their mind as this 
picture of the servant of God is given more detail. For us, though, knowing Isaiah speaks of Jesus, if you've kind of seen the brutality of what he endured, sort of well represented in a movie like Passion of the Christ, you see the flogging and the crucifixion process in all of its detail. You will have seen just how appallingly Jesus suffered how he was marred and disfigured beyond human likeness, as Isaiah said he would. And verse 15 just adds further mystery to our picture, that something is coming and will happen that's unlike anything our world has ever seen. With this idea of kind of sprinkling, which I think represents kind of the cleansing of many nations, powerful kings with great authority being rendered speechless, And those without the privilege of hearing God's plans in advance, like uh, those in Isaiah's day, that those who'd never been given a heads up would see and understand the purposes of God as Isaiah paints a picture of God's servant on a broad canvas. Verses 1 to 3 of our next chapter, a pretty unhelpful chapter break right in the middle of a song I might add, But chapter 53 opens kind of with verse 2 of uh, his hit song, showing us that God will enact quite an unusual strategy through his servant, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, says Isaiah. Asking the question, kind of, who would have thought the arm of the Lord, which is really kind of God with all his power and might, might display it? this way. Who has this been revealed to? Who has believed this message? That as verse 2 and 3 continue to show us, isn't how the powerful in our world tend to roll and bring forth their plans. This servant is like a vulnerable, tender, green shoot springing forth in an unlikely and pretty desolate place with no beauty or majesty to draw us to him who when we see Jesus striding this earth many centuries after Isaiah first said this, as this servant, Jesus, of course, certainly made some close bonds with a small band of followers and particularly some of the downtrodden in our world. But generally speaking, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering and pain, whom people hid their faces and closed their doors as he carried his cross up that desolate hill. The phrase at the end of verse 3, he was despised and we held him in low esteem, reflects the common verdict of humanity upon Jesus. This is an unlikely and an incredibly unusual strategy, a path the wise of this world would not tread, yet it was the path our God chose. As we move to the central verse in Isaiah's song, it's worth noting that in a kind of carefully constructed Jewish poem or song like this one, it's at the very centre of the song, in the, in the kind of middle verse, where you put the most important point that you want others to focus on. So let's have a look at verses 4 to 6 together to see the very heart of Isaiah's song, which shares with us the very heart of God's loving plans for our world. And as he uh, does so, Isaiah ratchets up the rhetoric 
making this whole thing intensely personal for us. Playing off the servant's actions with the kind of he, him language and drawing us all in with the corporate kind of we and our words. As Isaiah speaks ever so clearly about Jesus' death, many generations before Christ would ascend that hill carrying his cross, brutalised to the very limits of his humanity with a cross upon his shoulders, from verse 4 we read, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The readers of Isaiah would have had far less problems with this idea than our modern ears do. The Jews had a deep sense of the holiness of God, that his presence could bear no sin, and they had a pretty long list of failures. They were used to the idea that God showed grace and mercy towards those that he loved, teaching them the seriousness of sin while at the same time cleansing them of it through a substitutionary death in their place. The sacrificial system running for centuries taught them that. Their corporate history told them that story. But what would have blown their mind was that God was going to send this mysterious, suffering, all-conquering servant to die in their place. Now, if you're here today thinking through who Jesus is for the first time, or the first time in a while, you'll likely have a different response. And of course, Christians can still struggle to comprehend that our sin was bad enough for the just punishment for it to be death. We are all products to a different cultural story, a story that helps us to overlook our many faults, to frame ourselves as the good guys and blame politicians, blame our ancestors, blame corporations, blame the baby boomers, blame Gen Z, blame pretty much anyone to discourage us from taking a deeper look within and to see that self-interest taints us all, turning a blind eye to the power that we wield, coming off the back of pushing others down, often in far-off places, not wanting to see that the underlying problem beneath all problems is the state of the human heart and our stance towards God. God says in his word, I have given you sufficient evidence woven into the majesty of the created world, even a world marred by all that we do to it, a beauty woven into our hearts that longs for something far better, for justice, equality, and for all to prosper. God says this is sufficient evidence that I am here and I love you. Yet we're told we actively suppress that truth. We dishonour our God by worshipping the good things he has given us rather than orienting our whole lives around the gift giver. So it is 
confronting to, to explore these truths. It strikes at our pride to see the seriousness of what we've done, the truths that we suppress to our own ends, and consider God's right and just anger against it all. Having been through that myself and helped many others work through it, I always encourage people to be sceptical of their scepticism because we can't judge impartially about God's holiness and our sin. I've done jury duty, some of you might have done it as well, and you'll know if you have, that if you have any personal interest in a case that's to be judged, you have to do what is called recuse yourself, kind of fess up and step off because the jury, because you're deemed unfit to judge impartially. When it comes to God and our sin, we're, we're kind of the accused in this case. And we think at the same time we can sit in the jury passing judgment on God as we consider the case. We, we can't sort of step out. We're involved in the deepest possible way in this story. Yet we can't recuse ourselves. Hence my encouragement. If you're thinking all this through, do be sceptical of your scepticism. We cover this and much more in our life series, which is a great next step if you're considering Jesus for the first time or church in Jesus for the first time in a long time. We'll have more details out about our next series soon, but why not fill in the card today and we can be in touch or you can say hi after. But for now, I just ask you for a moment to suspend your judgment on the seriousness of the issue under, uh, outlined here as we have a look at the beauty of God's love-driven solution from verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, this servant, the iniquity of us all. What we're being told here is God takes the iniquity of us all and lovingly lifts it from our shoulders and lays it down on the servant's shoulders. Justice, the punishment of wrongdoing, is so woven into God's character that he simply cannot overlook bringing it. God's love for us, his children, is so much part of who he is, he cannot stop pursuing us to win us back into right relationship with him. So this is God's solution, to send his servant to bear our sin. And the humility of this servant, whom we now know as Jesus and can look back on his work that very first good, good Friday. Jesus' humility and his obedience is something to truly behold. Read with me from verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." There is something encouraging 
And there's much compelling evidence to put on the table here if you are considering Christ. The many little details told centuries before through Isaiah that played out so clearly in the death of Christ, the signed death with the wicked, crucified, between two criminals, buried in a rich man's tomb. There are facts of history here that cannot be ignored. There is proof here, compelling evidence that demands a verdict. Woven all through this passage, and indeed in many places throughout the whole Old Testament. Yet the biggest impact this should all make, where I would argue our hearts should run in wonder and in awe, is the same place Isaiah's first readers would have. The things they would have been overwhelmed by, that all of this was done for us, for you and for me, out of great love. Jesus' hands and his feet were pierced for our transgressions. As his body's weight was crushed and suffocated internally as the cross was kind of lifted up and dropped in its hole, he was oppressed and afflicted willingly without protest. As God come to earth as a man, he not only bore our humanity, As our creator God, he did not call out or open his mouth and call on an army of angels at that point. As my favourite line in our kids' Bible puts it, it wasn't the nails that held him there, it was love. It was love for you and for me. To know he's borne our iniquities, that he has interceded for us, it's the truth beyond all truths to know in life. As one of my favourite authors uh, on the cross, Donald MacLeod, puts it, and I think we've got a uh, quote to pop up on screen here. The advocate, Jesus, not only pleads for his client, but he takes his place in the dock. He becomes the accused. He becomes the guilty one, condemned and guilty one. He is led out to execution, not only with his client, but in his place. The client goes free. The advocate is crucified, receiving the wages of his client's sin. That is the love Jesus has for you and for me. That's the long view, that's the far, far horizon of God to pursue us in this way, remaining just, showing us grace, showing us mercy through a plan born in the deepest recesses of the Father's love for you and for me. God's Spirit testifies to this love in the heart of every believer and God is on a mission, the mission for his church to share this great news calling people from across the globe, as Isaiah said, the furthest islands from, you know, Isaiah wouldn't have been able to conceive of this island, Australia, of this day today, yet Jesus saw it and was satisfied. For he bore the sin of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors, rising to a new and eternal life, and he shares that spoil with us. So in the light of this great truth, in the light of being a people who know God's great plan, what does that, first of all, tell you about your identity? You are a much-loved child of God. And what passions do these great truths bring to life in your heart? A passion for God's glory, a passion to take up our place and our commission from Jesus to go into the world and make disciples, orienting our whole life around worshipping God isn't kind of an ego trip for a needy God. It's rather to take up his passion for the world and to be transformed into other person-centred people as we follow Jesus, to be intimately concerned for others, to address the deepest problem in our world, the problem of the human heart, by introducing people to the great heart surgeon, Jesus. So today, I want you to step back and take a view of a much further horizon. Eternity is a little hard for us uh, to grasp. So I picked a number and I landed today on 25 years. I just kind of picked it because it sounded like a nice round number. So look back 25 years if you're that old. If you're not, good for you. <laughs> a little shorter perhaps for our youth and young adults. But consider where you were 25 years ago. For me, I just had to laugh at God's sense of humour of picking that number. Because as I counted back, 25 years ago, I was parting my way around Europe just weeks away from the moment in a hotel room by myself where after kind of hearing this good news of Jesus for years and years and years and getting dragged along to church by family and friends and things like that, finally, 25 years ago, or, you know, short, but short a couple of weeks, I was finally convicted of my sin. I fell to my knees in tears, in a hotel room by myself. I fell to my knees in tears and gave my whole life to Jesus. And since then, so much has happened. But the thing I give thanks for the most over those 25 years, the thing that brought me the greatest joy was the people I came to know in God's family and the people, by God's grace and kindness, I had a part in playing on introducing them to the great heart surgeon, Jesus, and who joined God's family via that way. I thought of my first ministry gig, leading a group of year nine boys in youth, a number I've seen take a step out of their parents' shadow and make a deeply personal commitment to loving Jesus. It's a joy to see them following Jesus, loving their church family, working out what it means to live their whole lives for God's glory. And it's great to actually look out today and see uh, a number of them here and a few at Candlelight Gardens this morning as I left. But without telling you 25 years of stories, let me fast forward to last week a Sunday that I think I'll always remember as one that was really good for my heart. A rare Sunday because I'd been interstate all week. I had no tasks to do, but I just enjoyed cooking bacon and eggs at Candlelight Gardens last week, seeing people gather with great joy and 
and fellowship. And as the music kicked off, I jumped in the car and came and joined you here at Tonsley. It was a great morning where my heart just leapt for joy for the privilege of being with the people of God. Looking out and getting to know new people, seeing others whom we formed deep relationships over many years, serving God side by side. And looking forward 25 years, I'll be 72. (laughs) I'll consider it a great joy if God grants me to live that long and if Jesus doesn't return before then, I want to be the old guy sitting at church. I'm looking forward to that, welcoming people, encouraging others, opening up God's word, singing too loud because my hearing's gone, but with great joy in my heart. God's purposes and plans for this world are all about people like you and me being reconciled to him through Christ who climbed that hill across upon his shoulders bearing the humiliation, bearing the pain for us as God's love and his justice met on the cross and as God in his great power raised Jesus to life, bringing many to glory. And Christ looked at all that, seeing what was to come and was satisfied and was pleased to bear our iniquities to bring us into God's family. So with that in mind, kind of from this mountaintop view of the long game, the purposes of God, ask yourself the question, what am I going to give the next 25 years of my life to? Well, for the Christian, it should be to Christ, his plans, his gospel, his church here on earth. And as we work our way through this transitionary moment, What habits might you and I need to change to give ourselves more fully to this big picture plan of Christ? What hours could you cut from your week, things of lesser value, that you could actually redirect and give to things that you'll treasure 25 years from now? Things that you'll actually treasure for all eternity. Answer that question in this next chapter of life in the weeks and months ahead. Well, I think that's the right response to this mountaintop moment of Isaiah that we've read today. As you do, I thought today I've actually chosen an album, an EP actually, five songs from a musician I really love who I think captures the heart of the gospel in song in a way that you can really rock out to in the car. I've been doing it this week which I think from this passage really helps you rejoice firstly in the identity Jesus has won for us, for all who have trusted in his name. It it helps you rejoice in that identity and stir passions that flow from such beautiful truths. It's an EP called uh, Once for All by Trevor Hodge. I made a note for it in your outline. And if you're unfamiliar with streaming, maybe this is the week to ask uh, someone who is because we can all access these things freely on something like Spotify. But we're not going to leave today without singing one of these songs because it's good for the heart to give voice to what Christ has done for us. So sing it today with great voice. Rock out in the car in the coming weeks as you look to that far horizon.
But for now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your servant, our Saviour Jesus, who we've remembered his death on the cross by communion this morning and we've actually had the great joy and privilege of reading through one of the clearest and most beautiful passages that was brought out so many centuries before by Isaiah to help us understand what was going on as you brought your servant, our Saviour Jesus, to this world. Please we pray, Lord, for uh, all those who have already placed their trust in Jesus, that these truths, and as we sing them, as we pray, might just cause us to rejoice in our hearts for who you've made us in Christ, that they might generate deep passion for your glory and great love for others to share the great news of the gospel. And please help us at this moment in our lives, coming out of this winter into spring, to really think through carefully just how we can give ourselves more fully uh, to your work uh, in this world, bringing this great news of Jesus uh, to many. Might it flow joyfully and willingly from these truths that we've looked at today. For your glory and honour, for the sake of the gospel going out and for our blessing in participating in your work. We pray uh, for all those here today considering these truths afresh. Please help them to be sceptical of their scepticism in all of this. We pray by the power of your spirit, whether short time or long, uh, they too might come to place their trust in the loving, self-sacrificing uh, servant that we've heard from in Isaiah today. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.